0: All right. Well, good morning once again. We are in a new sermon series. We're two weeks into it. We're looking at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, New Testament book of, of Ephesians. And our text for this morning is actually a carryover from last week. We're, we're looking at Ephesians Chapter one, verses eleven through fourteen. But you should know this: verses three through fourteen, they're all just one big. It's one big run-on sentence in the original Greek. You know, so uh, we're we're, we're kind of tagging on to that. So yeah, I think you know, modern Americans, we like you know, we don't like sentences longer than like you know. Eight or ten words. Somebody's like to put a period in. But what we see here is, is, our text is actually building upon what we saw last week. And what we saw last week is that, is that Paul's writing to this church and he, and he calls them saints. And what we came to realize is that we are all saints. Who, um, all of us who are in Christ are, are saints. A saint is someone who's set apart as holy unto God for, for his, for him and for his purposes. And then we, we saw that that God in love uh, adopted um, us into his family. And so this morning we're going to continue on by what it means to be in Christ and that we've been chosen for an inheritance. That's a good word. We like that word inheritance. A few ears perked up there. So we're going to take a look at God's inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 11 through 14. to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word for us and to us this morning. It, uh, it, it, it's captured our, our minds. We want to know what it means, and we pray that your spirit, which dwells in us, would give us insight into what you would have us know about you and, and your inheritance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few months back, the Wall Street Journal ran an article titled Lost Inheritance. And the subtitle is kind of a long one. It kind of tells you kind of what the article is about. The title is Lost Inheritance. Studies show Americans blow through family fortunes at a remarkable rate with trillions being passed on. Can today's baby boomers break the cycle? And it's true, not just this story, but in a lot of research has found that, that most family estates are squandered within one or two generations. It, it's a very, very hard thing to, to set up an inheritance uh, in a, in a state that actually lasts for multiple generations. And yet, even with the odds stacked against us, we're all here thinking, you know, if I could just have an inheritance, I would prove those people wrong, right? Just give me some big inheritance and I'll show everybody wrong. Now, some of you are probably thinking, you know, I, big inheritance? Yeah, right. You know, my parents can barely rub two nickels together. You know, uh, and and so perhaps for you, there's not much hope in that area. Uh, pay attention. There's there's something good coming in this text. Others here, though, you maybe you you are. You know, there's an inheritance coming. Not that you want anything, you know, you know, any ill will, anything bad to happen to your parents. But the reality is, there's perhaps a day coming in which you will receive an inheritance from them. And perhaps you're thinking, you know, on that day things could get a, a lot better. <laughs> well, this article says, don't be so sure, especially if you have siblings. See, the Wall Street Journal article points out that it wasn't high taxes or poor investment advice that was the common cause for a shrinking inheritance. And it says 60% of the time it had to do with, with family squabbles. The article says that wealth is a magnifier. If you have problems, it will magnify them. And so the very people... Who were to have been blessed by the inheritance are now the source of destruction of the inheritance. Now, all of this to say, uh, inheritance is—they're not all that we make them out to be. At least an earthly inheritance. But the truth is, even with all these problems with earthly inheritances, for some reason it sounds far more appealing than anything God might have for us. Isn't that true? We don't get all that excited about what God may have for us. But our passage challenges us in this falsehood. In our passage, Paul talks about a great and glorious reality that rests upon all believers. And as we look at it this morning, we're going to see that God possesses a great inheritance and he has guaranteed it for his children. We're going to look at that. We're going to divide our time into three areas. We're going to look at the planning, the participation, and the praise. Planning, participation, and praise. First, the planning. You know... Every other year here at Grace Church, we offer the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University. And what Dave reminds us or tells us is that most Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Most Americans don't have the resources to, to survive even the, um, even the most basic of financial uh, emergencies. And and Dave teaches that most people, therefore, take little time to, to plan for a future, a financial future, and for leaving an inheritance for their children. Now this is not how God is. And we see that in our passage. In fact, God is a God who's been planning for his inheritance since before time has begun. And we see that God is a God of of purpose. He has planned an inheritance. How do we see this in the text? Well, look at verse 11. It says, in him, remember that's in Christ, in him, we have obtained an inheritance listen to these words, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Those sound a lot like planning words to me, right? God is a planning God. His inheritance was planned from long ago, and he is able to work out all things so that it comes about. Now, to understand, better understand this inheritance, there's um, some words in your English text there. If you have your bulletins, underline them. Don't use the Pew Bible. Don't write in the Pew Bible. But all right, uh, here they are. The very first sentence we see, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, it's pretty simple uh, looking in the English, but in the Greek, it's a little nuanced. There's, really, there's like two different meanings that could be going on here. Now, uh, normally we don't go into a whole lot into the Greek and the Hebrew, except maybe to help uh, makes something a little bit more uh, understandable. But um, in seminary, they, they they caution ministers from, you know, always opening up the Greek and waxing eloquently about it. The problem is, you know, you're going to go, well, then something must be wrong with my English Bible. I can't even trust it. I don't even know Hebrew or Greek. How am I to understand the words of God? Well, uh, you know... Be secure. Uh, our English translations are really, really good. The one that we use, the, the ESV, is a great translation. It's a word for word. Um, it's a, it does a really good job of communicating God's words to us. But there are times when we need to unpack the Greek a little bit more. And it relates around the word inheritance that we see twice in this passage, and uh, the word in possession. We see inheritance in verse eleven and fourteen, and possession in verse uh, fourteen. So we see we have obtained an inheritance and in the greek it's it's all that is just one word klerao and it's in the it's in the it's in the the passive voice it's a it's a it's a it's a plural passive it's a the third person and and, and so it can have two different meanings it can mean one that we have received an inheritance or two it can mean we have been claimed as an inheritance and I'm opting for number two. I know that's not what our text says, but this isn't just my idea. There are a lot of really bright theologians have looked at this, and that's the conclusion. So, we have been claimed by God for an inheritance. Why do we draw this conclusion? Well, from the context, what if you. From studying from what we 've seen so far, what do we see last week that that Paul calls the Ephesians saints, which means that God has worked upon them to make them his set aside people holy unto him this is god 's work we saw that God in love, how he chose uh, him from the foundation of the world. We saw that God is a predestining God and that he predestines people for adoption. I know that word predestination can kind of divide people in the church, but really the reason why Paul uses it is to unite us and to give us courage and strength. That God is a God who chooses from the past and he works all these things out. And, and, and so this week we see that Paul talking about himself having been predestined for this inheritance. This is all about God doing a work of, of grabbing people as his own, as we've been talking about. And also when you look at the whole Bible, look at the Old Testament, um, we see over and over this word inheritance uh, as a noun comes up, as well as that word Possession. In the Old Testament, this is rich with meaning. Um, God regularly spoke of, of his people as being his heritage or his possession or his inheritance. Let me just give you a few examples. Moses spoke these words of comfort in Deuteronomy. He said, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out from the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. As you are this day later he says that that uh, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth and then Deuteronomy a little bit later says um, but the Lord's portion is his people Jacob his allotted inheritance and then Psalm 94 14 says for the Lord will not forsake his people he will not abandon his inheritance so i believe in light of the of the context in the old testament this is the proper way to translate this passage maybe something on the lines of this in him we have been claimed by god for his possession having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will So this passage isn't so much about us having an inheritance, but rather God having an inheritance, which is us. So kind of in the end, I guess we really do have an inheritance, right? That's just kind of got to work it all together that way. Um, Paul is telling this Gentile church in Ephesus that God is a God who has gone to great lengths to acquire for himself a people for his own treasured possession so that's, that's just the big unfolding story of, of the Bible all the way back in Genesis we see that God chose one man Abraham out of all the people on the earth so that this one man would grow into a big family into a nation and that through this nation the world would be blessed and we see that the fulfillment of God's blessing upon this nation was the sending of the son Jesus Christ in him Paul says that we've had this but we know not all embraced Christ when he came right Not all of God's people embrace God's Messiah. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 1 and 2. That's the we that we see here. See, he isn't talking about you or me just yet. He's not talking about the Gentile believers. He's talking about we, the first to believe. We see this in verse 12, that there was a remnant of Jewish people who believed in the Messiah, and, and, and Paul's rejoicing that he was one of those people. Look at verse 12. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The first to hope in Christ. The small remnant of Jewish people who believed in the Messiah when he came. Paul's talking about those people. He's not talking about us yet. In in verse 13 he says, in him you also. That's kind of where we come into this. Now... Why would Paul write to this Gentile church and tell them about how God has chosen his people in the past and, and how Paul was the first to hope in the Messiah? Is he doing this so we can just rub their noses in it and say, aha, we were first, you're last, you're, you know, no, that's not what he's doing. He's not like a school, uh, you know, playground bully um, doing those kind of things. No, Paul is writing to them um, and us so that we would marvel in the purposefulness and the planning of God so that they and we would would see more clearly God's glory that that we would come to see that God is a God of planning and purpose and 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 that he goes through all of these efforts to bring us into his family and that it's all according to the counsel of his will and that's something that should kind of amaze our minds and kind of blow us away and cause us to rejoice you guys remember the movie Joe vs. a Volcano? We got some younger people here. You might not remember that. You may watch it on Netflix. It's a pretty good one. Was it? Right? I think it's PG. Maybe you can watch it. No? Some people are laughing at me. You didn't like that movie? <laughs> Joe vs. the Volcano? Yeah. Come on now. Tom Hanks is the hero uh, in this movie. And... What we see is that through a number of incredible circumstances and trials, he ultimately finds himself where? He's adrift on a raft out in the middle of the sea. And as he's drifting on this raft, he's got a lot of time, as you can imagine. And he's reflecting um, on all of his losses, all of his mistakes, all of his failures in his life. And, And in the expanse of the sea, he begins to despair. But there's a moment, though, one night when in the delirium that's brought on by by you know thirst and exhaustion, he he awakes and he looks at the stars. But now the stars are no longer arrayed in some random fashion. He looks at them and he's able to connect the dots, and he's able to see out of the night sky all the all the purpose and the planning behind it. He's he's able to see the constellations and and, and, and marvel at them. He comes to see that the world is not random. And then he rises to his feet with a sense of, of of purpose, despite his dire circumstances. And he speaks to the heavens and he says, "God, I thank you for my life. I did not know you are so big." It's a rather profound theology for a Hollywood comedy, right? But it is true. It, he comes to see that the world is all put together with planning and purpose, that even the trials and difficulties of one's life does not undermine God's plan and his ability to bring things about. And it causes one to cannot help but praise him. So that's our first point, the planning. God has planned for his inheritance with great love and purpose. God has secured for himself a uh, possession, his own people. Now we turn to our participation, our participation. Verse 11 and 12 was about we, Paul, and the first Jewish believers. And now in verse 13 we read, In in him you also. Paul is saying, So to you. In Jesus you also have been brought in to this reality. Now Paul elaborates more on this in chapter 2, but this divide between Jew and Gentile has now been done away with in Christ. People from all nations now are, are able to rejoice in this inheritance of God's people. So... God is saying, you know, to the Gentiles in Ephesus, guess what? The doors have been opened. Heaven has opened up its doors to you through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And, you know, the people in Ephesus, they needed to hear this. And I think so to us as well. See, the people in Ephesus, they were troubled by their gods. There was all kinds of gods in the ancient Greek and Roman world, but their gods were capricious. Their gods were vindictive. They were untrustworthy. They were fickle. You could not understand them, let alone trust them. Their gods never put their minds to anything and it lasted for very long. These gods knew nothing of steadfast love and they knew nothing about any sort of inheritance that would include people. And so Paul is showing them and us that the one true God is not like the pagan deities. He has lavished his steadfast love on his inheritance. He's, he's a God of power. He's a God of will and purpose. And he's able to make all things work out according to his purpose. And his plan throughout all time is to redeem unto himself a people to treasure and cherish. And you have been brought into that. Leave your gods behind and walk in that reality is God's uh, treasured possession. Now, we also need to hear this, right? Um, Not because we worship gods like the great goddess Artemis, who was the deity of Ephesus. There was a temple of Artemis there. Uh, The Romans called her Diana, but the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right there in Ephesus. We We don't worship goddesses or gods like that. But isn't it true that we do entrust our lives to to God-like idols that are just as fickle? Say, for instance, uh, you bow to the God of, of, of keeping your nose to the grindstone, the God of hard work and effort. And you, and you believe falsely that this God's going to deliver what you want. If you just work hard, you've been told, if you work hard, everything's going to go right for you. You're going to be able to set aside a heritage, and you'll have a, a nice retirement, and you pass something along to your kids. Um, but <laughs> we've all come to know that, that, that this, this, this God of the grindstone uh, cares nothing for you. <laughs> it's not a lie. The grindstone doesn't know you. It doesn't owe you anything, and in the end, it ultimately lets you down. Perhaps you do succeed for a while, but um, you know all kinds of misfortune is capable of creeping in. How are you able to safeguard your your hopes if that's the the god that you bow towards? Maybe that's not your god, but you get the point. And so, what Paul is telling the Ephesians and us is that is that the God who calls you into relationship with him is is sovereign, he's powerful, he's able to work all, all things. And in Christ, we belong to this God as well. We are his treasured possession. We also need to see that our belonging is really all a part of God's gracious work towards us. We're reminded of this in verse 13. Look at that, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Just as with uh, Paul and the other Old Testament believers, our membership into this heritage or inheritance of God is by faith. It's by his grace alone that we are members of this. It's in Christ. As we see here, a Christian is someone who what? Has heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him. Now, some of you here, you were raised in Christian homes, and perhaps you can't remember a day when you didn't believe in him. Guess what? That's good, all right? Uh, it's not, the cool Christians aren't the ones who've got this great testimony of of, uh, of uh, pagan living and, and a radical transformation to Christ. No, God's plan for his people is that, that the children would always know God and love him. And some of you that's your experience not that there aren't times in your life when when god takes you to an even deeper commitment towards him but you've always known god for others like me uh we can remember vividly that day in which uh we heard the word of truth believe the gospel and we're saved for all of us here that's the reality that we share we've come to believe the word of truth and experience god's salvation now Paul's reason here for reminding us this isn't to remind us, you know, what we believe or, or how we came to believe it. Paul's focus here, what we need to focus on is, is upon what God did for you at the moment you believed. It says this, in him you also, when you believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require, acquire possession of it. What do we mean by sealed? Well, Egyptologists who study hieroglyphics have found the name of an ancient man. His name was Hemaka, And he's the earliest one that we know of to hold this position, keeper of the royal seal. And his, his title reflects the importance of his function. See, in ancient Egypt, no business was transpired without the official seal or stamp of the king. Himaka served a king named King Den. He was from the first dynasty. And what they came to find out is that Himaka's tomb was almost as big as the king's tomb, which tells us just how important this this position and this seal is. What we need to see here is that a, a king, not just back then, but even in the Middle Ages, the king would affix his seal. He was, was like a signet ring or something that into hot wax, and he would seal it on the outside of the paper or parchment. And what he's saying is, is by the seal on the outside, you are to know that the words on the inside are mine. These things are going to come to pass. Um, you, you are to, you are to um, treasure these words here and put them into effect. So... With this in mind, Paul is writing and he, and he says that the moment you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. By placing his seal upon you, his mark upon you, God is declaring that you are his possession. And he's not just marking you out as his. We also see that the Holy Spirit is your, the guarantee that God's plan for you and his people Will come true. The word guarantee that we have in our English Bible is a Greek word that means a a deposit, like putting a deposit down on a home. A deposit means possession, but not yet full ownership. When God places His deposit, His Holy Spirit, upon you, He is safeguarding you for the future day in which um, that possession comes into its fullness. And so here's the reality. Your confidence that God will bring about this inheritance in heaven, it it isn't to be found in your pledge or how strong you feel your faith is on any given day. Your confidence comes from his pledge towards you, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps you say, well, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? You know, a lot of people stay up late at night worrying about these things, right? Uh, it could be a good thing to worry about. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's a good thing to ask, do I have it, right? Um, so how do you know? Now, some Christians some Christians will say, well, look out for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And that's true. Um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. And there's the fruit of the Spirit. I won't go into, there's uh, in Galatians chapter 5. You can read about the fruit of the Spirit. But, but over time, you should become more and more like Jesus. All right? But isn't it true that process can be slow? And isn't it true that there could be maybe seasons in your life where you feel as if there is no fruit and you can despair. and You can go, well, how, do I, how am I really to know that I'm part of God's blessings? So how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? You know, some Christians are so intent on, on evidencing the Holy Spirit by trying to find warm, fuzzy Holy Spirit feelings. You know, oh, I had a really good warm fuzzy feeling this day about you know I was thinking these thoughts and I had this warm fuzzy feeling. Um, it is true that a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, should give us emotional joy, right? Twice in our passage, what does Paul say? To the praise of his grace, he's being transformed by the Spirit to praise God. But but the Holy Spirit's work in your life isn't uh, to give you warm fuzzy feelings, right? Part of the work of the Holy Spirit sometimes is to produce godly sorrow and repentance in your life. Now, that's not a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? So the Christian life isn't about spiritual and emotional highs. It's about coming alive in Christ. And, And what we know about the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, is the Holy Spirit works in the background. His role isn't to magnify himself... The Holy Spirit exists to magnify the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit, you can quote me on this, the Holy Spirit is like a good drummer. Um, how do you know you have a good drummer? Well, a drummer is good. If a good if a drummer is good, you will not really notice him while he's playing. But if he stops playing, you'll notice. The rhythm section is, is not meant to to play the lead right it's it's there to augment the the melody so to the holy spirit all right so then how do you know you have the holy spirit it's simple do you believe i mean that's the point that paul's making here have you heard the word of god the gospel of salvation and believe because if you have then you've been sealed. It happens all at once. I know there's some Christians who say you've got to have your hands laid on and then the Spirit will come weeks or years down the road. No, it's contemporaneous. It happens all at once. You hear the Word of God, the gospel of your salvation, and you believe and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. I like what Brian Chapel writes about this. He says, it's kind of a long quote, so you have to listen closely. We fail to recognize belief as the indication of the seal of the spirit, when we fail to remember how supernatural is the gift of our faith. The gospel says you are a sinner, and Jesus, the Lord of all and Lamb of God, died for your sins. The world doesn't believe that. The gospel says that even when you are faithless, the faithful God has forgiven your past, laid claim to your life, and secured your future. The world does not believe that. The gospel says that though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Christ died for you, rose from the dead as the victor over your sins, gives purpose to your life now, and is coming to claim you eternally. The world cannot believe that. Not until the Holy Spirit comes and supernaturally changes a heart can anyone believe the truths of the gospel. Thus, says the apostle, your believing is evidence that the Holy Spirit Is in you what a comfort that is to all of us you would not have believed apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and so if you believe you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit God has marked you out as his and and nothing can change that and it means that one day God's full possession of you will be fully realized And so although this passage is really about God laying claim to us and making us his inheritance and putting his seal on us as a deposit guaranteeing that it's all going to come about in the end, um, that really is for us our inheritance. That this is who God is towards us. It's something that, should, that, should de- that we should delight in and have great joy in. See, in Christ, one day all will rise, and and, and we will belong fully to God and to, and to, um, and to our Savior. That, that we will come into full possession, or God will come into full possession of those that he's fought so hardly to gather in. Now, I hope that sounds good to you. It sounds wonderful to me, and it should lead us to our third point, which is praise. In our passage, Paul ends up each teaching section, whether it's for the Jews who believe first or for the Gentiles who are included, with the words to the praise of His glory, and that really should be the response of us um, as we meditate upon it. You know, a lot of times Christians feel like they, that, that. A lot of times Christian ministers, when they're preaching, they always feel like they got to add a bunch of things to do. You know, all right, so all right, now now we've looked at God's word. Now go pray more and uh, go work a little bit harder. Go use your spiritual disciplines. Always feel like we got to add something. But you notice here, well, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul talks a lot about how we are to live as believers in response of our identity. But here he just wants us to soak in the reality. Don't pick up and do anything just yet, all right? Just soak in this truth of what God has done for you. Uh, he, he models for us praising God's glory. One, one commentator writes, Therefore we were made a heritage in order that we might be to the praise of his glory. Oh, that we would have eyes to see how astounding this work of God is for his people. Paul here sees it. He shares it with with us. He, He shares with us how God has lavished his love and his mercy towards us. How in eternity past he has welcomed us into his family. And that he is safeguarding us until that age to come. He sees that God is lovingly cherishing people for his possession. Uh, people who are, are not treated as their sins deserve, but people who experience His costly uh, giving uh, salvation of His Son, people who've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we need to realize this is all God's work. This is not of our doing. This flows from His gracious, loving intention for His children. So we're to hear of this adopting love of God, this choosing and gathering in love of God that's been lavished on us, and it should have an effect upon us. It should cause us to, to come alive. You know like, like, uh, you know, like the electricity's been turned on. My daughter has a... Has a um, she got an electric blanket for, for a Christmas, and she's been accusing me of coming in in the middle of the night and turning it down. I'm like, I assure you, I haven't done any of that. It's on six. I haven't touched it, you know. But there's something about, you know, just turning it up and, there, and, and, and the warmth that that produced. All I want you to just soak in what we've, what we've seen here, and it should cause us to realize what God is doing for us and cause us to praise him. All right, so we began this morning by looking at our earthly inheritance and how unreliable and unsatisfying earthly inheritances can be. And I hope you've come to delight in the heavenly inheritance that God has for his people. Now, one last thing I want us to consider before we go to the Lord's Supper is this. You know, with an earthly inheritance, you work hard and you gather all this, and then you hope it's stuff that people like, it's not just money, but like trinkets and stuff, you know, all the stuff that gets handed down. All right? um, and, and, but it's only upon your death that it gets transferred to somebody else that you love. Or at least hopefully you love, right? That It takes death in order for the inheritance to be received by, by somebody else. But picture this, my friends. God never dies. He never parts with his inheritance. Which is perhaps why the Bible also translates this as, as a heritage, right? This is God's heritage. You are God's heritage, Picture that you are God's heritage. I don't know if maybe you're like me and you're thinking, "Really, God? Like you're really that interested in me?" You know, I mean, I don't like to sit alone with my own thoughts for more than five minutes, and you know, you're you're looking forward to all eternity with Mark Middlecoff. You know, um, you're laughing. All right, well. <laughs> Insert yourself there, all right? That's the whole point of me being vulnerable here, all right? Why in the world would God get all amped up over me? I mean, I know who deep down inside who I am, I I know how broken I am, I know how really boring I can be, self centered. Nothing like listening to a self-centered person talk and talk and talk. Why in the world would God get all excited and amped up for me and for you? Let me just lay it out there real quickly. One, you human beings are the only creatures made in God's image to reflect his glory. God loves his image that is in you. Yes, it's broken. Yes, it's fallen. Yes, it needs restoration. But that's why he sent his son. His son has come so that we may be restored, that that glory that has been lost will be renewed in us. What we've come to see, remember last week we are talking about this union with Christ? If you missed the sermon, you can listen online. But all throughout this text, we see in him, in him, in him. Our life, because we are in Christ, is hidden in Christ, like a bookmark in a book. Wherever Christ has gone, we go with him, right? Whoever Christ is, we will one day become. God delights in the prospect of spending eternity with me because I will one day be like Christ. And he is a delight to be with. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is eternal. God has always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this trinity, there is perfect joy and delight and fellowship and and communion. The Father has always experienced this in His Son. And we, being made in God's image, God longs to replant that image in us, that we would be like His Son. So God looks forward to seeing to spending eternity with you, because he sees you as his perfect beloved child already, and he longs to be with you. Tell me, is that not better than any earthly inheritance? Fix your minds on that. It's it's something I think that that we should. Thirty minutes on a Sunday morning is just not enough, right? We need to soak it in. Human words alone really don't do justice to, to really what Paul is saying is true for you if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, this is not for you. Keep your nose to the grindstone. It'll fail you, but whatever hopes you're placing in this earthly world for, for an inheritance, it will fail you. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. But these words are, are hard for us to really lay hold of the Apostle John tries to help us see in Revelation chapter 1. Let's end on these words. John is taken into the future and he sees Jesus and he sees what's going on in the age to come and he writes these words and he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Ponder that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you've given us brains. um, And you've given us your spirit. And you've given us your word. I'm afraid that I myself, I'm just so entangled with the sin and the, and this, the, the hopes of this world that I often don't see um, what you've done, this radical work of yours from eternity past to send your son that so for all eternity, you will cherish us. This is mind-blowing. I pray that we as your people would grow up in this truth, that we leave behind the the inheritances of this world that that tend to cause us to have joy, but rather set our hearts on you and what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Until you return, may your spirit seal in us that joy that we have. In Jesus we pray. Amen.